It's the 22nd of December, 2017. This is the Room Now Week in Review. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com, wishing you a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holiday. I hope there's a lot of time off for all of you to rest and recollect on the, la- on the last year and make plans for the new year. Uh, next week, during the holiday week from the 25th to the 1st, we will be on hiatus on RoomNow.com. We will be posting some of our best of articles and blogs during that period so you can still tune in and maybe find something that you might have missed in the past year. In this week's Christmas weekend review, um, a lot of information about psoriatic arthritis. At the close of business last Friday, uh, the makers of Tofacitin and Pfizer announced um, a new indication for Zelljans, that being psoriatic arthritis, which is now indicated for use in active Uh, psoriatic arthritis affecting adults either uh, to be used alone uh, as monotherapy or in combination with DMARD therapy or methotrexate. Again, it has the same dosing, the same indications, the same warnings. It does, however, warn about combined use. And there's a lot of talk and little information about when you use a DMARD like Zelgence in combination with another DMARD or even better yet, a biologic for which there really is no data. So the FDA does warn about combining the use of this drug with other biologics, cyclosporin or azathioprine, which it terms as powerful immunosuppressants, as again, these really haven't been studied. So it is a good addition. It's based on the OPAL data, which was impressive, uh, presented at ACR and ULAR this year. Um, It does substantially add to our arsenal of drugs for problematic psoriatic arthritis. It is not indicated for use in psoriasis where it has not been shown to be effective um, only at the very high doses of 10 milligrams BID, which is not an approved dose. So do not use it for psoriasis and skin. Yes, use it for arthritis and joints. Uh, Also this week, a J. Room article about the follow-up to the Spirit P1 study with ixekizumab, also known as TALTS. This was um, the results that followed a 24-week double-blind trial of, um, uh, of ixekizumab versus placebo versus adalimumab. Uh, and then in the extension after 24 weeks, the placebo and adalimumab patients were crossed over to ixekizumab 80 milligrams, either every two weeks or every four weeks. And again, at the end of one year, their ACR 2050-70s were equal, whether you received 80 twice, uh, every, twice a month or four times a month, Q2 or Q4 weeks, with ACR 20s of 69% on Q2 and of... 69% on Q4. So it looks like the ongoing dose should be uh, 80 milligrams um, uh, every four weeks. Also published this week was a meta-analysis of a number of different trials um, that looked at the efficacy of IL-17 inhibition uh, and all that's out there for psoriatic arthritis and basically showed compared to placebos, there was at least a two-fold greater ACR20 response uh, in patients who received an ACR20 uh, I'm sorry, who patients are received an IL-17 inhibitor. Uh, and across the board, they show no substantial increased risk or new signals uh, and no increased risk for infection, uh, serious adverse events, tuberculosis, uh, invasive candidiasis, or other um, um, infectious complications. So sort of a, a good news for those of us who are getting into the IL-17 business and finding its utility, especially in psoriatic disease, where it works great for the joints and it works great for the skin. 
Um, a Swedish analysis looked at uh, conduction disturbances. I'm sorry, looked at TB and other infectious risk amongst 38,000 pa- 38, patients with ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, or spondyl arthritis, and they compared this 38,000 to almost 200,000 in general population, looking at those who were biologic naive, those who were on biologics, and specifically looked at the TB risk, and basically showed that there was, um, for those that were biologic naive, meaning this is disease-only associated risk for SPA, PSA, AS, there was no increased risk of TB with an odds ratio of about 1.2. But when you added a biologic, in this case, most, most of these were TNF inhibitors, that it did increase the TB risk sevenfold, an odds ratio of 7.5. This is not dissimilar to a lot of the data that we've quoted in the United States and other non-endemic regions where there may or may not be a constitutive risk of the disease to get TB. RA, it's a slightly increased risk. It appears from this data, it's not increased in AS, PSA, and SPA. Um, but that when you add a TNF inhibitor, it takes your constitutive risk and magnifies it. In RA, that could be as much as ninefold. Many studies showed exactly this number around sevenfold increased risk when you add a TNF inhibitor. So again, there is something there that you need to be aware of. And again, of course, we know the TN, TNF inhibition especially is very, very important to the generation of granulomas and the maintenance of granulomas, which is why there is uh, a risk once you add a TNF inhibitor. Again, the risk with other biologics, including IL-17 inhibitors, is very, very little and more based on where someone lives rather than the biologic. Um, uh, an interesting study from ACARA looked at the uh, association of psoriatic arthritis in juvenile uh, psoriatic disease um, and to look at their weights. And we know that patients with psor- psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis in adults have a significant association with obesity and other comorbidities. And mainly they wanted to look at whether this also occurs in children. In fact, that's what they saw. Amongst their 320 kids in that registry, 20% were obese and 33% or one third were overweight, suggesting that this is, um, well, we certainly know that obesity is a big problem in the pediatric population, especially in North America, but that this carries through to those with juvenile PSA. The FDA issued a warning this week. It was a, a, a maybe a, a reissue of an old warning about the use of gadolinium or gadolinium-based contrast agents where they were studying them. This was based on an announcement they did in 2015 where there was shown some concern about the use of these, um, these agents for um, renal disease and CNS things. But basically they now say um, in this reissue that healthcare providers should limit the use of gadolinium um, and as an enhancement agent only when contrast enhancement is necessary for diagnosis and that you should also consider avoiding the use of repetitive MRIs that use uh, gadolinium-based contrast agents. Surprising bit of data came out this week, um, uh, made the news, New York Times, etc., about um, life expectancy uh, in the United States. You know, most of us have been touting the wonders of our great care and the advances in medicines and, 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 and medical care um, that's led to a greater life expectancy in each generation. And that's steadily gone up in the last uh, 30 years. But for the second year in a row, life expectancy has gone down in the United States based on 2016 statistics where um, uh, it dropped from 2015 uh, a life expectancy of 78.6 years to in 2060, I'm sorry, it dropped from 78.7 years 
to 78.6 years. This is, the, uh, this is the only time in recent history where there's been a consecutive year drop in life expectancy. And again, this data comes from the CDC and the, the Center for Health Statistics. The New York Times had an interesting article. It's probably worth a read for those of you who are perplexed by the issue of non-adherence and non-compliance with medicines. They go through a lot of the data, including the data that patients are, you know, um, especially in general care, not likely, or general practice, not likely to fill a prescription, at least half of patients, and that those who do don't usually take it the way they're supposed to. There may be a little bit better performance in chronic diseases and subspecialty care but not much. But again, when they review the data, it seems like the only thing that really affects um, adherence is the price of drugs. That when you try to incentivize the patient, have pill bottles that beep, have all other kinds of ways of tracking and reminding patients, they're not that uh, as effective as when the drugs in fact are cheaper, which I guess the patient feels that there's more value um, in the amount spent to the amount of derived benefit. So again, that maybe that needs to factor into some of the explanation that goes on. There's a clearly an educational gap on this issue of non-adherence. Um, a nice uh, review from JAMA looked at the incidence of tinnitus, a big problem for a lot of our patients, because we know that non-steroidals do um, significantly cause uh, a high rate of tinnitus, but uh, in their review, 21.4 million Americans have tinnitus. Um, that uh, that amounts to a, almost 10% of the population, adult population. A quarter of them have been having it for more than 15 years. 36 say 36% say that it is constant, and 7% say it is their biggest medical problem. So, uh, interestingly, in that article, nonsteroidals didn't play a big role. What seemed to play a role on um, risk of tinnitus were those who worked in um, office and industrial and other work environments where loud noises were a big part of their work. And it also another big uh, contributor are loud noises in recreational time or recreational environments. And obviously non-steroidals would be in that too. So things to think about um, when dealing with patients with tinnitus. Maybe you should advise them about how what, what's going on in their work environment. Uh, many of us are uh, certain based on Thousands of patients we see each year that tell us that when the weather changes, when the barometric pressure drops, my arthritis gets worse, uh, and it's it, we're, we're used to um, our, our, our patients becoming weathermen um, and uh, being fairly accurate, at least according to them. Um, but another bit of research actually comes, uh, uh, has been published that says uh, that in an analysis of claims data, where they tried to link up patients who... Um, went to doctors and uh, patients with musculoskeletal conditions who went to doctors uh, uh, and then they linked that up to the uh, rainy days and changes in barometric pressure either for the day that they went to the doctor or the week preceding they could actually find no association between um, rainy days and such weather changes and musculoskeletal visits to the physician you know, this is a lot like the diet data where patients can swear that a certain diet makes a difference, but most of the diet data is not very encouraging. And same thing for weather changes. It's hard to figure out, how, do you believe the research or do you believe the patients? I got to live with the patients. I'm believing the patients. Uh, in Olmstead County, the Mayo Clinic, they actually took another look at their um, rates of gout. Uh, and, and, and they showed, as you would expect, that in 
um, different decades, the rate of gout has gone up significantly. We know that over time, the frequency of gout has gone up in many different cohorts, including the Mayo Clinic cohort, where from um, uh, between 89, the rate was 67, and 2010, the rate was 137 cases per 100,000 individuals it's gone up but what they also showed during the 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 news here the great news flash is it's not just gout that's going up it's the comorbidities associated with gout also went up during the same time period there was a um a a rate of of uh of hypertension rose from 54 to 69 percent the rate of diabetes rose from 6 to 25 percent morbid obesity rose from 10 to almost 30 percent during the same time period when obesity, when when uh, when obesity rates are going up and 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 gout rates are going up, so again, there's a tie in there. Um, gout, I I believe gout is part of the metabolic syndrome and and should be considered as such. But uh, we need better data to make that claim. But I'm sticking by that for the time being. More on gout. Allopurinol um, was studied um, this week by Nicola Dalbeth and other researchers from Auckland, New Zealand where they did an interesting study where they, it was a follow-up to a study that they did, and they really looked at allopurinol initiation in patients and, and who had gout and hyperuricemia, and they looked at whether you um, initiated uh, right off the bat the escalation of allopurinol or whether you waited and then es- escalated after a time, all trying to achieve um, um, a, a target serum uric acid of less than 6 the interesting thing about this particular study was they showed that when you when you looked at renal outcomes, baseline renal, not outcomes, renal function based on creatinine clearance, uh, creatinine clearance did not influence the outcomes. And so if you were a creatinine clearance of less than 30 cc's or between 30 and 60 or greater than 60, you basically had the same rate of success um, in achieving your target um, serum uric acid, uh, roughly around 70 to 75% for all the groups that looked at, and they were not significantly dis- uh, different. The bottom line being that even in the face of renal impairment, allopurinol dosing doesn't need to be adjusted and doesn't need to be worried about as much as it uh, was you need to worry about it with nonsteroidals or um, with uh, colchicine in patients who have renal impairment. They said that, in, if anything, patients with renal impairment actually needed less allopurinol to achieve serum uric acid levels. And those who had normal renal function, no evidence of CKD, they actually required higher doses of allopurinol. The range was the difference of between 250 and 450 milligrams per day between the renal impairment group, lower doses, and the normal renal function group where they use 450 milligrams per day to achieve that target level. Overall, I noticed that that even though it was a protocol and and they were using urate-lowering therapy, the, the rates of, of success were 65 to 75%. So we still have a long way to go in achieving uh, our, our goals in treating gout. Uh, and that's very important to know. Uh, the risk of gout was looked at by Hyun Choi and others from Harvard who tried to do a newer analysis of flare, of either the um, onset of gout or flares of gout or recurrence of gout based on uric acid levels. Uh, and they showed, not surprisingly, they're closely linked. And they specifically looked at recurrence of gout was was low when the uric acid was less than 6, only 12%, and high, um, 61%, when the uric acids were greater than 9. When they looked at patients who were on urate-lowering therapy and who had achieved their goals and were supposedly controlled, rates of flares and recurrence were only 3.7% for those that were that were on um, uh, um 
that had a uh, um, a uric acid of of six, whereas the recurrence rates of even though they were they were supposedly controlled in on urate lowering therapy, when the urate levels were nine or above, it was a, again a sixty one percent increase. So uh, again, it tells us some data that we already know, but it gives us some hard numbers that we can quote with patients. Um, two last bits of information uh, is the rates of. Of, of knee replacements in rheumatoid arthritis patients has changed um, over the years. This is a study from the Danish um, registries and where they linked up their surgeries with their RA patients and their biologics. They instituted um, a, a, a change in their RA treatment guidelines in 2002. So they divided up those patients treated before 2002 and those after 2003 um, and looked at hip and knee replacements. Um, and they showed that while um, knee replacements were going up and up and up until 2003, then they went down in the biologic era, um, hip replacements were already changing and not seemingly affected by biologics. So this is, again, another bit of evidence suggesting the, the powerful cost savings behind biologics. It used to be that the number one cost to the extreme cost of RA care was surgical care. Uh, and what we've done is we've replaced the cost of surgery with the cost of biologics, but the patients are better off and don't need surgery. Uh, lastly, um, a nice report from um, Jeff Curtis and colleagues looking at a way of predicting serious infectious risk in RA patients. Uh, and in, in that particular study, what they did was they took and, and established a, um, a comorbidity index. And based on um, usual comorbidities, and if you had two or mo more comorbidities in this comorbidity index and you were on steroids, you had a significantly higher predictable risk of serious infection. So again, they looked at the, this was data drawn from the RAPID1, RAPID2 trials with sertolizumab, and, and, and their comorbidities were things like age, diabetes, COPD, asthma, etc., and there was a score that you could get, those weighted scores, and they called this an AC, AACI index. So if you had a two or more with steroids, you had nearly a threefold higher risk of getting an SIE. So again, yet another way of predicting the risk of a serious infectious event in RA patients um, and then RA patients. You know, if you want to look at RA patients going on a biologic, you need to look at the rabbit risk registry, which will do the same thing. Take the same parameters, plug it into equation and show you rates that are quite surprising. So that's it for this week on RoomNow.com. Hope you have a great holiday. Um, go to the website to see the links and read more about these news reports. Uh, we'll have more for you in the new year. It was a great year this year, thanks to you. Uh, we appreciate all your comments and input. We'd like to get more of that as we go forward. We'd like to make this um, a, a very valuable resource for you and your education. Uh, have a happy new year.